At the Sports History Network, we're proud to introduce you to a new sponsor for our podcasts. It's Homefield Apparel, your premium collegiate apparel brand right out of Indianapolis. They've got incredibly comfortable t-shirts, plus they're officially licensed with vintage college designs. They have over 150 plus colleges available now and always adding more. Homefield digs through the archives and history of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school. When you shop today, new customers can get a 15% discount off their first purchase using the promo code SPORTSHISTORY at checkout. You can learn more at homefieldapparel.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to Game Film, the sports movie review podcast, with your hosts, Oz Davis and Aaron Harris. This is a story of two men who run, not to run, but to prove something to the world. They will sacrifice anything to achieve their goals, except their honor. received unanimous critical acclaim. Majestic, masterful, triumphant, and joyful, says the Los Angeles Times. The New York Times calls it rousing and invigorating. ABC TV says you'll be riveted, enthralled, and you'll cheer like crazy. It's for everyone, says Newsweek. And the New York Daily News promises it will lift your spirits to a new high. Chariots of Fire. All right, that's the trailer for Chariots of Fire, a 1980 film, probably still best known in Hollywood circles, at least as having pulled the biggest upset ever at the Academy Awards in the Best Picture category, still the biggest upset to date. But looking back on it, really, either Reds or Raiders of the Lost Ark really should have won that year. So I'm going to use the imdb.com brief synopsis here because I think it's really how they promoted this movie to serious audiences okay so, yeah. so it goes two british track athletes one a determined jew the other a devout christian compete in the 1924 olympics that's pretty much it so you i believe hadn't seen the film before i am not now what'd you think what's your take uh well in our baseball episode we talked about how i wasn't too fond of movies that take place around the 1920s and after having watched Eight Men Out, I thought maybe I could give a little more, um, maybe give a little bit more of a shot to films during that time period. But after watching this, it just reaffirmed my notions going into it. This to me was an absolute snooze fest. 
Um, Hugh Hudson, in my opinion, didn't have a pulse. He took all the energy out of this movie. I think Ben Cross and um, Ian Charleston, the two actors in the film, the two lead actors, I think they did okay. But, you know, this isn't a kind of film where your screen presence can save a lack of direction. I think the only exciting parts really came from the editing. So I can't even give Hugh Hudson credit for that. Um, you know, so, some of the running scenes are okay, but ultimately this is the kind of movie that actors, directors kind of take on just for the sake of winning an Oscar. It's the kind of film that <laughs> that fake intellectuals talk about at cocktail parties as great cinema. It's a movie that I believe, um, it, it's interesting that how it came out, I think in 1981, which is kind of like the, um, the decline, if you will, of like the new Hollywood era movement. So it was a lot of less risky filmmaking, a lot more conventional. And I think a film like this kind of set the standard for what was going to become the norm in the 80s that ultimately wouldn't leave until the 90s came along. Um, so, yeah, this is a movie that I will not watch again. <laughs> and I know you I know you thought that I uh <laughs> I know it was frustrating to watch the Baron and the kid for our billiards episodes, but you got your sweet revenge on this one. Oh, wow. Okay. Gee, I'm sorry. Look, the truth is I thought I had seen this movie since having seen it as a kid back in the eighties. Uh, but I guess not because I remembered it as a pretty decent film and it really, really isn't. I mean, the problem with the film is, you know, they tell you this in script writing one oh one or whatever that's, you gotta have a conflict. And where was the conflict here? Here they are at IMDb, and certainly this is the way that they pitched it to the Academy voters, is that ostensibly you have a Jewish guy who's being gonna be repressed by the system or whatever. He's not gonna be given a fair shot. He's not going to be horror of horrors considered a proper British gentleman. But this is never in evidence. This comes to a head, this, this non-conflict, I guess, comes to a head when he has to talk to two officials, I guess they're kind of with the Olympic Committee or they're influential with the British Olympic Committee, mm -hmm. and they imply that he'll never be a proper Brit. He goes, just you watch. I can be as British as anybody, <laughs> you know, more right. or less. Wow. Great. Not exactly brilliant stuff. I mean, what happens in this movie? Sorry, guys. Spoilers. Two British guys. They like each other. They both go out for the Olympics. They both make the team. They both win medals. They both grow old. They still like each other in the end. Where's the conflict here? Where's the drama? Yeah, just non-existent. It feels as if it's trying to make a grand statement about class warfare or re religious discrimination in Britain at the time, but the story just doesn't move along in a way that's captivating enough to care about what happens. You know, it feels like a lot of, I feel like a lot of it is like these, you know, close-up shots of people just running. Right. This is a very difficult sport to actually make a movie about. I mean, this is a literally a contest in which, you know, it's not like boxing in which you can have a definitive winner, but which there's yeah. a lot of technique. There's really no technique in running in this capacity, right? I mean, I know people who are running are probably screaming at the microphone right now, but there's not too much you can do with the kind of sport like this where, number one, it's a very short sport, right? I mean, if you're running 100 meters, it's going to be over really quick. So it's not like you can have these long extended sequences. And the, the preparation for it, too, it's really hard to craft a narrative and, 
at that to kind of create a narrative with a message behind it. So they did it at least once, though. What's the best scene in the movie? The best scene in the movie is right at the beginning. And they had me right near the beginning of the movie where the two guys meet at Oxford. I think it's Oxford or Cambridge, mm-hmm. one of the Oxbridge. And then they have that race around the square and they say they had me when they said it's never been done in 460 years or whatever and i'm like yeah all right greatest of all time this is the kind of stuff i want to see and that's really exciting and and they do interesting things with the camera angles and of course the setting is more interesting because you get that whole schoolyard and whatnot you know it looks really picturesque so you got that on your side but still, he was trying there. That was pulse pounding. That was great. You know, the thing with the clock, because they got to get around before the clock strikes 12. Yeah. It was just, uh, that, that was great. Where was this for the rest of the movie when you talk about yeah. it's a difficult sport to do? And the thing uh, we talked about, one of, one of our mutual favorite movies, Run, Lola, Run, I saw an interview with Franca Potente after that film. And she says, at one point, I I was being very self-conscious and the director told me, he's like, look, nobody looks good running. Uh, Right. And that's one thing they have against you, especially these guys. You know, it was like this technique where they're running it in slow motion. You know, I don't know, I guess maybe to drag out the actual event. Right. It's as though the actors are told, well, this is going to be filmed in slow motion. So they're exaggerating the movements. I mean, I, I mean, it was flat out bad direct. Well, and plus the close-up shots too with their face while they're running, it, it kind of adds like this sort of comedic element yeah, to of course. It unintentionally, right? Of course. And the thing that's funny for me is like, you know, in the opening credits when they had that song going the only reason why i knew that song prior to this movie was because of the office <laughs> they had used it in like uh, one of their episodes when they were trying to make a commercial so for me i just couldn't take it seriously right from the get-go so maybe that's maybe maybe for me it kind of ruined it from the the onset but i gotta tell you yeah, 81 they- 82 that song was ever look this is okay you want the difference between the 70s and the 80s in terms of music of all sorts, especially in movie soundtracks. In the 80s, everything had to have a synthesizer. Here's another one to go back and listen to, Hoosiers. Mm. That soundtrack was everywhere when that came out because it's all a synthesizer, right? You can play it in the background yeah. of anything. Well, it's funny you mention that too because recently I just got done rewatching The French Connection. And the score for that one was done by Don Ellis, and it was a big band yeah, there you go. production. You know, it, it was like, and it's so captivating. Whereas with this, definitely has like that synthesized feel, yeah. where it's a little slow, more melodic. And, you know, when I think of just one that got me way more excited for a movie, or maybe not excited, but way more tuned in for a film, it was Don Ellis and the French Connection, as opposed to uh, whoever the composer was for this. Vangelis. So what, like, what was it about this movie that you enjoyed when you first saw it? Well, I mean, the reason why this thing won the Oscar problem is that uh, it was an epic. It was an epic. Hollywood loves an epic. Lots of big shots. In those days, the Olympics was still something. This was after 1980 and after the boycott of the Olympics. And so everybody was feeling really melancholic about that. And the Olympics was a big deal. Before the internet, the Olympics was a big deal before internationalization of sports. I mean, even in the U.S., it was a big deal. How many things can you say that about, like, just inserting? That was a big deal before the internet. Oh, oh many, many. And live sports is, is certainly one of them. And, and, and this, them, yeah. and the kind of event where you're seeing athletes that you're literally going to see once in your lifetime. There, there was no YouTube. 
So there was totally a big deal. So, you know, I mean, there hadn't really been, I think, anything on this level. Epic sports movie. It was British. So, of course, you know, the acting is, especially at that time in a mainstream movie, the acting is going to be well, well better than, than, than what's coming out of the mainstream of America. Mainstream Hollywood, I should say, to be fair. Right. So it's got that Oscar formula, right? It's got that big formula for success. It's just... I, I yeah I know t- today if this were made today this would be an episode of masterpiece theater it, I could see where the interest is uh, perhaps but for me it just doesn't it doesn't strike me as entertaining nor captivating if this were today I mean how many things can you say this about if this were today the BBC would take it and make it eight episode series right and you could actually flesh out these characters yeah that I would potentially be interested in seeing that I would watch. And I'm someone who prefers movies over television, but right. I would still kind of be interested. And in, I think many series you can kind of accompany with television or with movies in some way more so than you can television. But yeah, it, this would definitely be a situation where I feel like if you had more time, you might be able to have a little more, a little more of that conflict that you were talking about. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes Want to hear an amazing story? Back in 1960, Coach Brooks was on the Olympic hockey team. But a week before the games, his coach cuts him and sends him home. And that team went on to win the gold medal without him. Herb Brooks had given up his dream of Olympic glory until 20 ordinary kids. Why'd you want to play hockey? Isn't it obvious for the girls? Gave him a second chance. The Soviets win. My goal is to beat them at their own game. Beat the best team in the world. Gold medalist in 64, 68, 72, 76. Name? Mark Johnson. Buzzy Schneider. Michael Ruzioni. You're missing some of the best players. I'm looking for the best players, Craig. I'm looking for the right ones. They were bitter rivals. A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Yeah, that's gonna work. But one coach had a plan to turn them into a team. I got no time for quitters. You want me to play, huh? I want you to be a hockey player! I am a hockey player! Think that'll get them going? Oh, yeah. When you face the impossible... Russia's main weapon is intimidation. This guy's ever small? They're Russians. They get shot if they smile. And you refuse to give up. I didn't think it was gonna be this hard. Yeah, you did. We start becoming a team right now. Miracles can happen. When you pull on that jersey, the name on the front is more important than the one on the back. Michael Ruzioni, 
Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. Welcome to the Olympics, gentlemen. Walt Disney Pictures presents. This is something that this country is ready for. Great moments are born from great opportunity. If we play them 10 times, they might win nine, but not this game. Listen to it. We can beat these guys. Discover the story. This is your time. Behind the greatest moment in sports history. Okay, so the next movie we're going to talk about is Miracle from 2004, starring Kurt Russell as Herb Brooks, Eddie Cahill as Jim Craig, Patricia Clarkson as Patty Brooks, Noah Emmerich as Craig Patrick, and so on and so forth. So this is a fictionalization, or a dramatization, I should say, of the 1980 USA men's hockey team's victory over the Soviet Union back in the Olympics. And I remember seeing this I seen the trailer for this movie when I was younger, although I don't I don't think I actually saw it until recently going into this episode. Um, now, I'm kind of curious from like your perspective as someone who I presume watched the event live and have studied the implications of it. What did you think of watching the dramatization of it? Well, again, I was a kid when I saw this. And also there's another version of this. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a TV movie, believe it or not, starring Carl Malden. Uh, as the coach. Um, so that came on like two or three years after this. I mean, this was one of those stories that as soon as it happened, right. you know they're making the movie. And, you know, a bunch of people cranked out books and there was all kinds of stuff for kids on this and whatnot. So uh, I had seen a dramatization before. Now this one, okay, give me some room. I'm going to rant, folks. Okay, so extremists like me, people people that tend to see things, you know, from a radical political point of view, are often scoffed at when we say that Disney films are insidious, Disney films are harmful, they're bad for your kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And whenever you say something like that, you're always pressed for example. Well, okay, here's an example, this movie. So the film starts off, and they're trying to set the table by giving us the atmosphere of the time and whatnot, right? So, so they're showing, you know, hallmarks of the 70s, mostly political stuff, you know, about inflation, about gas lines and whatever. You know, you got clips of Gerald Ford as president, Jimmy Carter as president, whatever. All of this is meant to be a leader to the fact that the U.S. and the Western European countries boycotted the 1980 Summer Games, sort of a foreshadowing for that after the 1980 Winter Games, which this film is about. Now, let me ask you this, Aaron. Do you, do you know the specific reason Carter gave for boycotting those Olympic Games? No. Okay. Of course you don't. And you couldn't possibly tell from this movie. But let me tell you this. The reason for that was the incursion of Soviet troops into where? Afghanistan. Well, guess what? At the time of the release of this movie, the U.S. was in a war with Afghanistan. And guess what, by the way? That's the United States' longest ever war. But we're not going to mention that in this movie. But By not mentioning that in this movie, we are basically depriving people 
of important historical fact. So the movie goes on. And, you know, now we're in kind of the Disney family ho-hum kind of stuff. You know, some of the hockey looks pretty good, but I was surprised that some of the iconic shot that we got from the telecast from afterwards aren't actually in this movie. Like in the in the Carl Malden movie, what they did was is they, they would intercut the shots that you expect, you know, like the one where Ruzioni's throwing a stick with two seconds left, you know, where, where Jim Craig has the flag and he's looking for his father in the stands and stuff like that. What they would do for that is they cut in the real stuff. It's kind of some of the iconic moments are not in there. But, you know, I guess it looks pretty good. You have the Disney thing where you have this subplot, where you have this imaginary, oh, my God, you're obsessed with hockey. You're not spending enough time with the family. You know, you have this problem with the wife and whatever. Okay, this stuff is true. This stuff is no big deal. Okay, and then you get to the end. Here comes another voiceover, right, that we don't need from Kurt Russell. Okay, and here's Coach Kurt Russell telling us how proud he is of this diverse bunch of kids from, you know, all around America and blah, 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 where in the first act, they're grousing about the fact that the team is essentially all from Boston College in Minnesota, right? They pan down the line on the podium and it's a bunch of skinny white guys with long hair. How is this a diverse group? Okay, but the real capper is, the real capper is the bit where he's he's doing the, the old guy grousing thing, right? Where he's going, and these guys used to drive us crazy in the 90s. I can tell you that much. He's grousing about, yeah, now professionals play in the Olympics. Dream teams, they call them, right? And then he says, and this is the part that just blew my, my head off. Is he goes, how ironic is that now that we have dream teams, we're not allowed to dream. Okay, time out. Who is we? Right? Who does he mean we're not allowed to dream? Who does it, what does he mean we? Does he mean Americans? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's, here's what Kurt and I guess Disney are quote unquote missing is that guess what? We're the USSR now. Americans with their highly paid professionals stomping everybody in the Olympics are the Soviet Union team. They're allowed to dream now. That's the point. And somehow Disney and this script are trying to convince people that somehow the USA are victims because hockey at the Olympics is the best hockey ever of all time because other countries can make super teams now. This is absolute trash. This sort of stuff descends to the level of propaganda. Okay, rant over. Watching the movie, I guess it took me about an hour to kind of get invested in it because I thought everybody was kind of miscast. It seems like everybody in this movie was kind of more of a uh, sort of like um, a 90s boy band impersonator in Vegas <laughs> as opposed to an actual hockey team. You know, they have they have one guy that they have like a, a mustache for, I guess, to kind of show the time. I thought, I thought Kurt Russell as Herb Brooks was OK. Yeah. yeah, I think he kind of settled in a little bit. It looks like he was giving too much of an effort in the beginning, but he kind of settled in. But it was a fine movie to watch. I'm not sure I'm going to watch it <sighs> again, though. No, I, I, the formula failed. 
You know, the, the, the formula failed here. And here's the thing. Here's the thing of this versus Chariots of Fire. Okay. We have movies in between those films, like, I don't know, take your pick to eight men out. You know, if you mm -hmm. don't want to go sports, Titanic. Okay. We have these movies of big historical events where you're able to examine many characters in the time that you have. And again, by insisting on sort of this fake subplot about, you know, him and the wife, you know, not spending enough time together. They could have been developing. Yeah, that was out of that was out of out of right. Place. They could have been developing the the Jim Craig story more than oh, you're so sad. Your your mother died. You know they they could have again right like, like yeah. there's no character development here. There's plenty of conflict, right? But just no no character development. Well, not only that too, but like as far as like the actual hockey footage, I mean the last obviously the last match there's a lot of hockey, but you know kind of going into that you didn't really see too much hockey play, which was kind of disappointing. It's kind of like like quick snips here and there. The hockey looked pretty good, and you know, it wasn't just one static shot. You know, pretty good, but but again, I don't I don't understand why they just couldn't have, especially with the technology we have today. Why couldn't they just have taken the original footage if they want to just CGI it? Well, I think the only original footage they had was uh, the Al Michaels commentary in the beginning of the uh, the match. Again, like like again, like nothing really worked in this movie. Nothing really worked. I mean, the hockey was good, but there wasn't enough of it. You know, I mean, there's no character development. The story was fascinating. I love it how he tried to build a team from the two teams uh, in the playoffs, in the college playoffs that hated each other. That was great. That was great. And like when he was working them almost to death, that was great. That was good stuff. Well, well, yeah, like the scene with the uh, the scene with the uh, the whistle. Yeah, right. Uh, again. Yeah. When they that kind of that, that that's the point in the movie I think where I started to really get invested in it. Well, yeah, because yeah. it was a good scene. <laughs> it was a good scene. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, okay, this is a coach and a hockey team. Okay, this I believe. You know, the rest of it, not so much. Well, the weird thing is too, a lot of people would say this is actually one of the most accurate sports betrayal movies of all time. Yeah, sure. I believe it. I don't know the ins and outs of the entire story, so I can't kind of back that up, but I always think it's funny because whenever one of these comes out or whenever somebody tells this story again, we always have to remind Americans, you know, that wasn't the final game. They still had to beat, you know, what was maybe the third best team, second best team in the world, really, Sweden in the finals. You know, we still had to beat them, remember? Right. <laughs> but that's a harder sell. Well, well it's kind of like the uh, Paul David Tyree catch in the uh, Super Bowl. Glasgow <laughs> Burrs gets no love. Olympia is a documentary film about the 1936 Berlin Olympics directed by Lenny Riefenstahl. It's a fairly straightforward capturing of major sporting events at those games, but quite, I'll just cut to the chase and say this is really gorgeous filmmaking that's still well esteemed by directors and critics today. In my opinion, Olympia is the Citizen Kane of sports documentary and even 
like any visual production of sports nowadays, particularly in terms of the innovative camera angles and editing techniques used in the film. Uh, now, I used to lecture on this film when I taught my history of film class at university. Uh, but I, so I know this film up and down, but again, here's another film area that I believe that you're seeing for the first time. Uh, what were your impressions going in almost completely blind? Yeah, well, the first 20 minutes of the movie kind of felt like a, um, like if you're ever, if you're ever going apartment hunting, especially in, in the era of COVID and you're doing virtual tours, it kind of takes you all throughout the uh, apartment. <laughs> That's really what it is. I mean, she's at the, uh, I don't know, what is it, the Parthenon? or uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it really is. I mean, the first 20 minutes, I mean, it, it may seem a little long to a lot of people and maybe somewhat out of place, but it really is a great demonstration of, like, the moving camera, especially for 1938. I mean, it really was yes. incredible to kind of see how she wanted to capture every angle, use great dissolves, great transitions to kind of create this mood that would be leading up to the 1936 Olympics. There's also a very important point to this. The 1936 games are usually cited as one of the most innovative, the major step forward in Olympic games, the way they were presented, the way they were hosted and whatnot. And one of the major innovations that they made, of course, was this um, torch relay, right. right? That's the first time it was done. And they started it in Greece, I believe at the Parthenon, in fact, literally at the Parthenon. And so, of course, Lenny Riefenstahl, who is more or less working for the government on this film, you know, is sort of encouraged to, <laughs> let's really push this angle. Now, more abstractly, more philosophically, uh, the Germans were interested in, you know, presenting this games and the previous modern Olympic games as the direct descendant of the ancient Greeks. And their games and their philosophy and whatnot, you know, basically trying to put Berlin back to the heart of Western civilization, Western thought, let's say. Um, so that's what that's all about. But having said that, I agree with you 100%, Aaron. You can put this one, and I, I never recommend this one, but, you know, watch what you want, get the points, and then you can fast forward. Well, I'm, I'm glad how you also brought this up in the same breath as Citizen Kane, because as I was watching it, you kind of got the same sense that what that was to fictional filmmaking, this is the documentaries. And like you said, sports Absolutely. video production, because this is Absolutely. it's kind of a, it's kind of weird because you do see a lot of the same camera angles that you would see television producers use and directors moving forward for capturing sporting events. But you still also see a really good um you you don't feel like you're watching a television movie, you know what I'm saying? You don't feel like you're watching a sporting event. You feel like you're watching an actual film. I mean, like even when they're doing like the uh, the javelin, um, the javelin jump. I mean, you could see right as they're crossing over the bow that you have slow motion capturing, and you see guys that they touch it, kind of like the uh, the slow motion falls to the ground. I mean, you really do see a lot of great close-ups, especially the guys who are you know throwing the discus, the shot put, how the camera just follows the disc back and forth in hand. I mean, it really does a great job of establishing that visceral, visceral sense, you know, kind of keeping you. Yeah, a lot of uh, would-be great nations, uh, even today, but throughout history, really have, have used sport as sort of this demonstration of physicality 
and through that sort of, you know, the willpower and the strength of the empire itself, or the would-be empire itself. We see this again, like right after the war uh, with the Soviet Union. And of course, I really think America's been doing for, you know, a better part of a century now, you know, just sort of showing off through athletics. And this film is about that, right? It's about capturing beautiful bodies, the ideal bodies, right? you know, moving through space, right? Again, Letty Riefenstahl is an artist, right? She's, she's, one of the things uh, in America that we do is we'll label these filmmakers, especially in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even into the 60s from Europe as making art films, okay? But they weren't thinking like that. They weren't going, I'm making an art film. They were thinking, I'm making a film, right? Well, Lenny Riefenstahl is one of those people. She's just making a film. And especially in the second part of the movie, which is, well, which is now the second part of the Festival of Beauty, especially in that part, this is just joy of filmmaking. The bits where you have divers and, and they do the thing, and I was just watching diving actually last night, on the Olympics. And of course they do the thing where they show the diver jumping off and then they hit the water and then they show from underwater. Well, the way that she did this was by having a guy with a camera jumping into the water at the same time the diver. Can you imagine? At this time, only Wells, only Orson Wells would have ordered somebody to do this. Yeah. Only, only he could have figured out how to do this. And again, this is not documentary making. This is not wide world sports. This is filmmaking kind of like if you got a real director to do a sports event or to do better yet to do the highlight film of a sports event like the olympics that's what this film is. it's funny you mentioned that because i was watching the hall uh the uh, hall of fame game last night and then one of their um oh wow great and one of their uh transitions out of the um going into commercial break they were playing a um a song from the pulp fiction soundtrack you just you just kind of wonder, you know, if you had a little bit more variety in terms of not just what's popular right now, but if you add a little more sensibility to it, like vintage graphics. I mean, you could definitely have someone who could be like an auteur of a uh, sporting event, no doubt about it. I also oh, sure, yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. I, I would if you're just here, if you would like to watch this movie just for the sports, great, great, because the actual sports in here are amazing. I mean, there's the, again, it's the Olympics, right? And and um, do yourself a favor. I wanted to say this. Do yourself a favor if you're going to do that. Um, and don't Google anything, right? Don't Wikipedia anything. Like, look at that after. Just watch the thing because you will enjoy it much more. I mean, uh, like I was telling Aaron, uh, you forget the particulars whenever you watch a movie over and over again Boy. over a period of time. And I was getting into some of this stuff. You know, I was just like, oh, wow, you know, because it was almost like seeing it for the first time, if well, you don't know the particular. And also, too, I mean, like watching the film almost gave me that same ambiance of watching 2001, A Space Odyssey, in a way, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. you have like that same vast quality. And especially in the intro, whenever you're talking right. about um, in the intro of like 2001, I think it's like the first half hour when you just have the monkeys that are, uh, you know, going wandering through the desert and you see just sort of the camera just sits there and captures everything. And of course they have music too, but whereas here, I feel like the music is replaced by just the cheers of the fan and the um, commentary from the PA announcer. Right. You know, to me, it has like that right. same patient ambiance that kind of leads up to something, but you're not exactly, well, I guess you do know what it's going to be the results of the athletic event, but it still does give you that same um, 
anticipation, I guess you could say. But it's, it's right. like a calm anticipation. You know, you're just kind of along for the ride, but you want to see where it goes. And like and like 2001, which is a two and a half hour film that only has 21 minutes of dialogue. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, exactly. The, ratio. the movie that this reminded me of most of in a weird way was ESPN 30 for 30 called June 17, 1994. It's the documentary, which it's the day that OJ Simpson gets into the Bronco chase. And the point of the movie was on this day, like all this other stuff was happening in sports. Uh, the Stanley Cup victory parade was that day. And then there was like Arnold Palmer's last major was in there. Wasn't there a, like a, the Chicago Bulls basketball game? I think, I don't know if it was Al Michaels got a call. Yeah, yeah. There, was, there was NBA in there. And then there was, yeah, in the playoff. Yeah, it might've even been in the championship. And then they kicked off the World Cup that day. The U.S. World Cup, Bill Clinton was there. And they presented this documentary as just a pastiche, right? There's no commentary at all. All the dialogue, so to speak, is, is ambient. It's whatever was there. You know, it's the guys calling the game or, you know, just the crowds cheering at the, at the Stanley Cup or whatever. Yeah. And so it's a completely different film done for completely different reasons. But it really reminded me of this film because that's all it is, man. Once it gets going, it's just wall-to-wall sports. <laughs> it's great. Well, now that you mentioned that, it actually brings up a documentary I watched, I think, about a year and a half ago about the, um, I think it was LA 95, about the LA riots. Oh, yes. I th- yeah, I think you might, I think you might have seen that. It's, uh, yeah. I, I want to say that's the correct one. I'm going to look it up right now, but that was LA 92. That's another one where there's absolutely no voiceover narration. It's just footage after footage, almost like you're watching a continuous newsreel. And I actually enjoyed that that style of filmmaking better than actual conventional documentaries where you're just allowing the natural sound or the natural dialogue to speak for itself, which obviously obviously there are some topics that are difficult to do in that in that sense. But I think when you can do it well, it's powerful. In the 30 for 30 documentary, it's just like there's enough going on where that you don't need any explanation at all. And, and there's no wasted time. That's the thing. I feel like a lot of times in, especially sports documentaries, there's a lot of superfluous narration. There's a lot of extra bits just because they're trying to pan it out a little bit, you know? And it's just like, no, no. In a film like that, in a film like this one, I mean, she's leaving stuff on the floor. One of the things about this movie, Olympia, is that it's gone through many different cuts, many different iterations since 1938 as you can well imagine. One point, it was even re-released in 1948 in America, like an hour and a half long version. Pretty much just, you know, like no Germans winning. All the stuff with Hitler's cut out. But yeah. it's gone through many different iterations. At the time, she could still uh, play this film in Western, so-called Western countries. And so there's a, there's a British print of this from 1937, 38. There's an American print of this from 38, 39 that exists with with more highlights from America, with more highlights from Britain in it. And so the one available on YouTube also uh, for online download and on DVD, apparently this is the version out now, which is this two-part version. Yeah, that's the one. That's how I watched it. Yeah. I don't think there was anything. I don't think there was anything cut out. I have the older version, the old like straight four-hour version that I that I used to teach with I did not subject my students to the entire film but uh, you know that was that was the only one where I didn't show the entire film actually was was Olympia I only showed the highlights but 
tremendous fight. Tremendous fight. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely glad I uh, got to see that one. I've never seen much of her, of what she's done. But yeah, this was definitely, definitely an influential movie. You could definitely see in previous documentaries or even in sports where, where she The nice it. thing about this film being so influential is that a lot of it looks really fresh. You know, a lot of it is still, you know, good sports. So again, like if you're into sports, I mean, just watch the sports in this movie. <laughs> it's, right, yeah. it's, it's pretty exciting. Okay, so there you have it. There's another edition of Game Film. Before we go, I just wanted to let you know where these films are available. Chariots of Fire is available on the free streaming platform, Tubi. How would you describe Tubi? It's kind of an off-brand Netflix, huh? Yeah, it's ad-supported, so you don't need to have a subscription. You don't need to have an account. You can just do it as a guest, but... um... Yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to find a different brand of films on there than you would. I mean, they do have they do have some interesting movies and a lot of um, popular titles or more recognizable titles, I should say. But then they also have your sort of, you know, cult following trash movies yeah. that people worship for some reason. <laughs> uh, those can range from those can range from like crappy horror, you know, scary movies to erotic thrillers. But there it has a pretty good variety. So I would highly recommend people at least check it out because it's a great free option compared to having you know three or four different streaming services that almost end up being as, as expensive as cable. Or more. Yeah, I bet James Six starring Michael Keaton is going to end up on Tubi. You can see Miracle on Disney Plus and Olympia, the two-part documentary is available on good old YouTube. And it even now has English subtitles. Until the next time, probably in a couple of weeks, for my co-host Aaron Harris, I'm Austin Davis, and this is Game Film. See you at the sports movies. It was just another ordinary day in the offices of the Pittsburgh Guardian newspaper circa 1924. But for Marla Delft, assistant editor, everything was about to change. For she was about to discover the awesome attractiveness of Row 1 brand retro sports paraphernalia items thanks to Orville Mulligan, sports writer. And there it is. Wow, Orville, that's really the bee's knees. Isn't it just? A poster-sized replica of the actual 1909 World Series program cover. I can see that. But where did you get it? And where'd you get it framed? I ordered it from the Row 1 website where over 6,000 items of sports memorabilia from the 1880s to the 1990s are available for reproduction in multiple sizes and in several different materials, with over a dozen styles of frame to choose from for prints like this. Well, I'm sure Mr. Delft would love to put up more of these in the office, but I'm equally as sure they're beyond this newspaper's budget. <laughs> Not at all, my dear Marla. See for yourself. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com row one. 
sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. Oh my, these are good prices. Oh, and look at this stuff. Oklahoma, Nebraska football, college basketball art, Michael Jordan items. And so Retro it was that Marla Delt discovered the splendiferous magic of row one sports memorabilia arts and prints. You can too by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. That's R-O-W-1 number one today for access to the full row one catalog of gallery prints and gifts like t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, telephone cases, coffee mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Act today for a 15% discount off all prints with coupon code SHN15 and 20% off all other items with coupon code SHN20 at checkout. And keep your dial locked to the Sports History Network for the exciting chronicles of the 1920 sports world in Orville Mulligan, Sports Writer, coming soon.